Welcome to the Movement Logic Podcast with yoga teacher and strength coach Laurel Beversdorf and physical therapist Dr. Sarah Court. With over 30 years combined experience in the yoga, movement, and physical therapy worlds, we believe in strong opinions loosely held, which means we're not hyping outdated movement concepts. Instead, we're here with up-to-date and cutting-edge tools, evidence, and ideas to help you as a mover and a teacher. Welcome to episode 15 of the Movement Logic Podcast. My name is Dr. Sarah Court, physical therapist and motorcycle enthusiast. And today I'm going to talk about research. Now, before you run away screaming, please know that I get it. Trying to understand research can be really hard. It can feel frustrating and it can feel like it's just, you know, better left to other people. I had a really good example of this experience. I run a small mentorship group for movement teachers. It's like a monthly ongoing con ed course. And I tried to get them excited about doing one, one meeting about one meeting, not like 15, one meeting about research. And the, the feedback that I got was a resounding, loud and resounding, no thanks. So I get it. You know, it, it can feel like it's just something that you don't want to do. But the problem is... A lot of research that we hear about in the movement world has been interpreted correctly, has been misinterpreted, I think. Is that actually the word I'm looking for? I don't think you can interpret something miscorrectly. Anyway, it's been interpreted incorrectly. And then that incorrect interpretation gets spread around as if it's gospel. So I want to help you avoid that error. And... In order to do that, I'm going to give you three easy rules to follow, as well as the three most important things to be aware of when you are actually looking at a research paper. And I'm hopeful that after you listen to this episode, you will be less intimidated, you will be better equipped, and potentially you might even be like kind of a little bit jazzed about reading research. I'm not going to hold my breath on that last one, but a few of you, a few of you might be like, you know what, actually, this is kind of cool. All right, so let's get into it. Three easy rules. So rule number one, if you read about a research paper in an article, you are not allowed to quote anything just from that article. So what does that mean? So for example, let's say you're reading Yoga Journal and they publish an article that says a recent research paper found a connection between practicing yoga and reducing depression. That sounds really cool. However, you cannot then, after you read your your Yoga Journal, uh, go teach your class and say, a recent research found a link between yoga and reducing depression. Maybe it did, but my point is you have to go and look at the actual research paper itself that the article is quoting. And if the article does not provide you with a direct link to that research paper, you have to say automatically no. That's a a David Rose, Schitt's Creek, immediate hard pass, automatically no. If the article itself is not showing you where it got the information from, that's gotta set off like a big old alarm in your head. Most articles, most well-regarded journals will, will give you the link to the article. They just, they should, they have to. However, very often what's actually happening is the article itself will write a very uh, clickbaity or kind of hyping title to get you to read the article. 
But when you then go click on the research paper and read what the research is actually saying, it doesn't actually say the same thing that the article is claiming that it does. There's an example of incredibly destructive repercussions that are still being repudiated 20 years later. That is the Women's Health Initiative study that started in the late 1990s, looking at menopausal women and hormone replacement therapy and what some uh, side effects, or if there were any negative side effects that, that were taking place. The study itself was flawed and the authors have since retracted and repudiated their own results. They, they are now saying we misinterpreted the results. What the media did was they saw some of the results, which were there's a, a tiny number of people that had cardiovascular disease or breast cancer. The media took a hold of those and blew it way out of proportion. And the repercussions have, have been that almost overnight at that point, the, the something between 70 to 80% of women who were on hormone replacement therapy stopped. And to this day, so that was 20 years ago, to this day, I think there's something like five or 10% of women who could be benefiting from hormone replacement therapy during menopause who are actually doing it because that misinformation spread so fast and so wide. And as someone who is doing a small amount of hormone replacement therapy, the amount that I'm permitted to as a breast cancer survivor for my own medically induced menopause symptoms, which are significant, I, I can't fathom going through this without the help that I'm getting. And the number of women who are suffering needlessly continue to suffer needlessly for years and years and years from all of the symptoms of menopause that can be treated is, is, um, it's, it just makes my head want to explode. So that's a really strong uh, example of how a misinterpretation by an article or a media or you know some other piece of media can cause huge ripple effects into, into society. So if you're like, well, okay, but you're telling me, don't just read the article go back and read the research paper, but I don't know what I'm supposed to look for in the research paper, don't worry. I am going to tell you in a little bit, but at the moment we're still on our three easy rules. So rule number two, if you are taking a class and the class teacher says research has shown, and then they say something that is either super vague, like deep breathing is good for you or super specific, like this yoga asana pose prevents diabetes or <laughs> they can't really explain what they mean. Um, ask them afterwards if they can send you a link to the research or where they read about it or where they, where they got this piece of information that they are disseminating in class. And if their answer is something like, oh, my teacher told me, or I read this thing online, you do not get to repeat what they said and call it facts. People say ridiculous things in class that they have heard from who knows where, from teachers, from other friends, you know, a headline on an article that they didn't read. And they, these are not facts, my friends. <laughs> um, I can't remember if I've told this story in the podcast or, or somewhere else, but I, uh, I took a, uh, I think it was a bar class one time. And as we're all like sweating and working and I, I really don't enjoy 
it personally. Uh, I'm not sure why I was there. Sometimes I'll keep taking classes just to be like, wait, do I really hate this? And then I'm in the class. I'm like, yes, I really hate this. So anyway, uh, I was there not especially enjoying what was happening, but the teacher then said at one point, this kind of like bar exercise, this kind of exercise burns the fat that's on the inside of your body. And I, I, I was just like, what are you talking about? As opposed to the, the fat that I brought in my purse, like all of my fat is on the inside of my body. So it made no sense at all, right? People say weird things. Anyway, so an example of something where people get really excited about a study, but they don't actually understand what the study meant, or they, they don't get it, they don't have the opportunity, I should say, to really pick it apart and, and figure out if it's a good study or not. There was one about five years ago that went, was really kind of like popular and viral in the, in the yoga and movement world. And it was a study about getting up and down from the floor and the link between if you had to put a hand down or a knee down or, you know, how much, how much you had to help yourself as a, as a direct link to mortality. The way that it worked was if you could stand up without using your hands, that was the best score. And then every sort of hand or elbow or knee that you had to put down, you got points detracted. So there are a few things when I looked at the study that, that are, are really just kind of off. First of all, if you're not walking around practicing getting up and down from the floor without using your hands, it's not actually that easy to do. And you would probably put a hand down whether or not you actually need to from a, from a strength or flexibility standpoint. You would just do it because it's, it's easier. And the instructions, the verbal instructions that people were given were without worrying about the speed of movement, try to sit and then rise from the floor using the minimum support that you believe is needed. Which to me is super vague because you know, with the minimum of support I believe is needed, I would just sort of like, well, I believe I'm going to put my hand down first because that's going to be the most comfortable way to do this, right? So I'm not getting information around, I understand that they're trying to not bias people about how to do it, but at the same time, I don't know, just to me, the wording of it is, is very vague and, and misleading a little bit. The criteria for the people who were included in the test, they specifically excluded people who played sports. And by excluding people who played sports, they were automatically skewing their results towards less functional, less strong, less mobile people. Uh, they also excluded people who had a musculoskeletal injury that would get in the way of the test. And that, I wanted to make a point, that's actually, I think, okay, because within that group of people, like let's say someone had an ankle sprain or they had knee surgery or something like that, there's going to be a variety in that group of fitness levels. Some people might've injured themselves, you know, being active. Some people might've injured themselves just in an accident. So that's actually okay. But what the test, you know, quote unquote found was that the older that people were, the less well they performed the test. And then they correlated that to a higher all-cause mortality. But the other thing that puts you at risk of mortality is just being older. So the study showed that the older people were, the less well they performed this test, the older people are, the more likely it is that they're coming towards the end of their life. So 
everyone was freaking obsessed with this proof for a while. And I think it's not in small part because it was very social media friendly. You could film yourself getting down to the floor and back up again without using your hands. You could engage your, your followers. You could have them try it. You could create a hashtag. You could get lots of likes and comments and shares. And you could also sound sort of a, a semi-intellectual that, that this came out of a research paper. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people leaned into that. But the problem was the research was deeply, deeply flawed. So it would be more accurate to show the exercise and be like, hey, this is hard and fun. Try it. Tell me what you think. That's literally all you could actually claim about it as far as it showing you, you know, at what age are you going to die? Okay. Rule number three. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. There is a study that came out a few years ago about yoga for osteoporosis. And the title of the study is very misleading. It suggests that all you need is 12 minutes of yoga a day and you can reverse bone density loss. But in the study itself, they say that they are looking at using yoga to prevent fractures from falling, which is not at all the same thing. Those are, are two very different things. The, the methods described are, are kind of iffy and hard to understand. And I don't want to go into it too much because Laurel talks about this study in her episode on bone density. I think that's episode five. Jules Mitchell and I discuss it in our episode. I believe it's episode 12 uh, as part of the episode. And so if you want to hear more about what about the study is like not so great, you should go back and listen to those episodes. It's hard because this would be, you know, if this actually was proved to be true, it would be fantastic. What a what an easy and cheap solution that doesn't involve, you know, medication or other other expenses. You know, you just do some yoga every day and you could reverse your bone density loss. But it sounds too good to be true because it is too good to be true. Okay, so those are your three super easy rules. Number one, read the actual paper, not just the article about it. Number two, if there is no source for the claim that you hear from a teacher, read in a book, overhear in a coffee shop, you, you cannot just swallow it wholesale. You need to assume that it's just not true. And number three, if something sounds too good to be true, you need to have a super, super hyper critical eye about it. Okay, so let's say I'm at the point where I read the article, the article said something intriguing, it was interesting. And then I clicked through and the research paper was there, the whole thing. Well, so, so now what do I do? Because let's say I don't, you know, when I was in PT school, we had multiple courses about research, how to read research, how to create it, how to make our own studies. We had to design and run our own research studies. So I have a lot of experience around that, but that's from PT school. When I was a yoga teacher, I had exactly zero experience around it. So if that's you and you're like, okay, well, great. Now I click through the research paper and it's just a bunch of words that are like swimming and there's like statistics and something about a power and a significance and a, ooh, you can you can look at a paper and still have that hypercritical eye and just understand uh, what things you need to pay attention to. And I'm going to give you three things to pay attention to while you're looking at a study. So the first thing is 
knowing that not all studies are created equal. And by that, I mean, there's a hierarchy in terms of how quote unquote good research is based on the kind of study or analysis of other studies that it is. And essentially the ones that you can put more faith in are the ones that are higher up in that hierarchy. So the categories that are that I want you to keep an eye out for are three. The first one is something called a systematic review. So with a systematic review, you are not creating your own new research study. You're not getting volunteers and all that kind of stuff. That's not, that's not what you're doing. What you're doing is you're coming up with a question and then you are going through the existing research and using existing research to answer it. So you pick out, you know, a thousand studies that are on that topic and then you exclude the ones that aren't specifically related to your question. And then you go through and you pick out the ones that are well-designed, well put together, and you leave out the ones that are not well-designed, not well put together. And then you use that to get the answer to your question. And so what's good about that is instead of it being a solo study, you are looking at possibly hundreds of other studies on this topic. And so there's more data. And so we get better results that way. Within a systematic review, you would also be very likely to do something called a meta-analysis. Now, meta-analysis is our second category. So we've got systematic review when you're taking, you have a question and that you're gonna get it answered by looking at a bunch of other studies. Within that systematic review, you may do something called a meta-analysis, but you could also do a meta-analysis just by itself. So a meta-analysis is when you take a bunch of studies that are all on the same subject and you just, ex you, you go through the same process where maybe you exclude them if they're not as good or if they're not quite on the same subject or, or things like that. You get sort of a core bunch of studies and then you extract all of the results from all of the studies and kind of blend them together and do your statistical analysis on that big pool of data. So you're, what's really good about that, which hopefully makes, you know, or you may already intuitively be like, oh, that's, that sounds good. In, again, instead of, let's say your study that you ran that had a hundred people in it, now we have a data pool of 50,000 people. And so the, you know, outliers become much smaller in terms of how, how often they, they pop up when we get more and more data like that. So those two, uh, systematic review and meta-analysis, those two are when you are looking at research that has already taken place. The third category that is of the best types of research is something called a randomized controlled trial. So this is the gold standard of running a study. What's so good about it is that people who are in the study are allocated randomly into treatment group or a control group, meaning there's going to be people getting whatever's happening and there's going to be people who aren't. So you have that comparison. In addition, the people running the trial, running the study are blinded. Uh, it just means they don't know whether the person they're working with is in the, the getting the trial, getting the treatment or getting the control. So any bias that they might have, you know, unconsciously brought uh, can't be there. You know, all of these things are, are, are supposed to help 
control for any sort of accidental bias that might come in that would change the results. So basically it's just about making everything very um, random in terms of who gets treatment, who doesn't, not letting people have access to pieces of information that might change the way that they run the study, things like that. And so that's the best possible way to run a study. There are other types of studies, like there's a cohort study, a case control, a case study. Those all may, they may not be bad. They may be actually very well run, but in terms of how much uh, you want to, you want to give them value, let's say, they're just not as good as the others. So for, for your purposes, you want to really keep an eye on systematic review, meta-analysis, and randomized control trial. And you'll know which one it is because it'll say it in the title or in the very early part of the study. So you're not gonna be combing through being like, oh my, what is, I can't, I don't know what this is. Hey guys, it's Sarah. Laurel and I really hope you're enjoying the new Movement Logic podcast. We are having a, such a good time. We both really love sharing ideas with each other and getting sparked by things that the other person has learned. Our goal for the show was to help you feel the same way so that you can feel excited and inspired by what you're learning and even maybe take some of these ideas into your teaching. That would be that would be amazing if that's what happened. I'd be so happy because I, oh my God, we both know what it feels like to be uninspired, to be stuck in a rut, desperately trying to come up with new ideas. So you, you take another training and it just ends up, you fall back into your old habits the things you already know how to do because it's too hard to change who you are as a teacher. We've all been there. The whole reason why we created the Movement Logic tutorials was so that you can enhance what you're already good at instead of trying to be some other different kind of a teacher. Every Movement Logic tutorial contains so much to help you do that. Hours and hours of anatomy, kinesiology, myth busting. Myth busting is maybe my favorite part of the whole thing. But most importantly, dozens of exercises that help you with strength or flexibility or functional movement, whatever you and your clients want to do in their life. Because we're so grateful that you are listening to our podcast, we have a podcast exclusive discount to say thank you for supporting our efforts with your ears. What you can do is you enter the coupon code podcast at checkout to receive 10% off of your entire purchase. You heard that right. You go to movementlogictutorials.com, take a little scroll through all of our different tutorials, stick some of them in your cart, the ones that you're like, ooh, pelvic floor, ooh, shoulders, and then enter the code podcast at checkout and you'll receive 10% off your entire purchase because we appreciate you. So thank you and go forth and save. So second criteria is, has anyone else replicated this study? So let's say it's a study that's a randomized control trial and you look at it and you're like, wow, that's really good. The way in the, in the research world, one of the ways that research is found to be valuable, found to be you know, believable and accurate is if somebody else can go in and take your study and do the exact same thing and get the same results. There was a while ago um, a study about something called power positions that I think a lot of people have probably heard of, where it's claimed that if you were, if you adopted a position of confidence, power of taking up space 
before a stressful event like a job interview, that it would boost your confidence, your self-esteem, that it would even improve your memory, uh, your pain tolerance, and decrease your fear. And this was that thing of like, you know, standing with your feet wide and your hands on your hips or with your arms up and reach, reaching in like sort of a V shape. And, uh, you know, it got a lot of immediate attention as well because it sounded like, well, that seems pretty easy. And I just go in the bathroom before my interview and put my hands on my hips and take up a lot of space. And, and then I'm going to march into this interview and nail it. You know, that sounds great. But nobody was able to replicate this study and get the same results. And in the world of research, that's kind of considered the same as like, you, you made this up. I'm not trying to make any sort of claims about any of the, of the research that I'm talking about today. I'm just presenting you with my interpretations of information, but it is a really, really big deal if you can't replicate someone's study. There's a, a great example of a study that has been replicated many, many times. And that is when they do an MRI of uh, sort of randomly collected people who don't have back pain and they do MRIs of their low back and they find a huge number of people have things like a disc herniation and stenosis, disc degeneration, all kinds of degenerative issues, uh, injuries, or, or just sort of repetitive overuse, all that kind of stuff. And none of these people are having any back pain. And so that has really drawn a line through the idea that your back pain is being caused by your disc herniation or your back pain is being caused by your bone spurs or any of those things. And that study has been replicated many, many times. So that is evidence that you can, you should still go read it, but that is evidence that you can say, okay, more than one person has been able to do this and they get the same results. Therefore, this is pointing towards this being really very accurate. And then the third thing is you want to look at the methods that they describe in the study. And I have to say a big thank you to Jules Mitchell. And if you are actually interested in learning more about research, she does a whole section of it in her 300 hour uh, yoga teacher training. And that's something you can go look up on Jules's website. Uh, but the methods, so there'll be a section of the, of the study. It's usually pretty early on just called methods and methods is supposed to describe how they did the study. So in theory, you should be able to look at the methods and replicate it, right? Because we know now that's one of the ways that we can ensure that the, the research that we're reading is actually good quality research. But if you read the methods and you can't replicate it, or you read the methods and you're like, this is not going to, there's nothing about this explains how you are then extrapolating this other piece of information then that's another, that's another really good thing to be able to do. Don't worry about all the like statistical analysis and the discussion and all that kind of stuff. That, that's, that is, you know, I mean, feel free to read it, obviously, but it can get super intense. I still hate statistics. I, can't, I couldn't stand it at school. I still cannot stand it. But getting, being able to, to look at the methods is, is one sort of, it's an easier entry, I think, to, to understanding research. So what I thought I would do is take the methods from the study about getting down to the floor and back up again without using your hands or your knees or whatever, and uh, go through it and just sort of go through it line by line and tell you what the issues are that I see. So in that study, they used a specific 
test that was already in existence that had been used in other studies. And that's actually a really good thing to do because it just gives you more of that uh, accuracy and authenticity in what you're doing. You're not making up a new trial, a new test that has no backing. So it's a test called the sitting rising test and it's, or shorthanded as SRT. So they're using a specific test that's already been used. That's good. We already know that they have filtered out basically the more fit people, <laughs> which I find problematic. Okay. And so now I'm, this is from, I'm just going to quote the methods. The SRT assesses components of musculoskeletal fitness through evaluation of the subject's ability to sit and rise from the floor, assigning a partial score for each of the two required actions. So, okay, already this test is described as assessing musculoskeletal fitness. It's not assessing mortality. So, your ability to do the test or not do the test does not automatically reflect mortality. All it reflects is musculoskeletal fitness. So already I'm running into, this is hugely problematic, but let's continue. So I'll keep going. SRT was administered on a non-slippery flat surface in a minimal space of two by two meters with the subject standing barefoot and wearing clothing that did not restrict body movements. Okay, that sounds fine to me. I don't have any problem with that. Before the SRT, the evaluator instructed, without worrying about the speed of movement, try to sit and then rise from the floor using the minimum support that you believe is needed. And I talked about this a little bit earlier, but I would listen to that instruction. I would think, hmm, this floor looks hard. <laughs> I'm barefoot. I don't think I want to go down hard on a knee. I think I'll put a hand down. And to me, that's the minimum support needed. But if someone told me to try and sit down without using any support, then I would attempt to do that. So what they're claiming is to know why someone is putting a hand or a knee down, that the, the why of it is directly related to unsteadiness, not related to, I don't know, preference you know, I would look at uh, that hard floor and be like, why would I try to sit down without putting my hand? Like, just... Anyway, SRT partial scores begin with a maximum of five points separately for sitting and rising. So getting down to the floor, you get five points. Getting up from the floor, you get five points. One point was subtracted for each support utilized. That is hand, forearm, knee, or side of leg. And an additional half point was subtracted if the evaluator perceived an unsteady execution, which they describe as partial loss of balance occurring during the action. So evaluator perceiving it is a bit iffy. Maybe they, A, they could miss it. B, they could overinterpret a wobble as like, oh, this person lost their balance. Also partial loss of balance is not full loss of balance people partially lose their balance all the time and don't fall, right? So partial loss is actually a recovery, which is a successful not falling event. Me partially losing my balance and then recovering my balance while I'm doing something doesn't mean that I am a falls risk. And it also, you know, it, it, it doesn't, 
I clearly have a lot of feelings about this, but this idea of like unsteadiness and again, interpreting the meaning behind the unsteadiness or instantly saying, oh, well, that's like, you were going to fall because you, you got unsteady. I don't, I, I find that problematic. Okay, here we go. I'm going to keep going. In addition, one point was subtracted if the subject placed one hand on the knee in order to sit or rise. Mm, I have mixed feelings about that. Lots of people put their hands on their legs to sit, uh, to stand up or to sit down. Not on, honestly, not that they necessarily need to. They just kind of think maybe they need to. Crossing the legs for either sitting or rising from the floor was allowed while the sides of the subject's feet were not used for support. And I just find that confusing. How am I supposed to be sitting cross-legged on the ground and not have the side of my feet touching and then somehow get on the soles of my feet to stand up? That, that's, that seems like a lot of, it just seems, I'm just confused by that. I find that weird. If a five score was not obtained, the evaluator provided some advice that might assist the subject to improve their SRT score in other attempts. If you're watching the, the video of this, you can see that my eyebrows are essentially at my hairline, and I'll tell you why. At no point in the study do they tell us how many attempts each person got, just that they take the results, they take the score from their best attempt. So does everybody get the same number of attempts? Is there a, you know, you get three attempts and we take your best one, you, you get five and we take your best one? Do some people get five and some people go, like that already there's, there's so much room for question in there and it's not clearly delineated. And then finally, there is a, a video and it's on YouTube and I'll, I'll put the YouTube link in the notes where you can, where it shows you the SRT test, the performance and the scoring. And the only new piece of information from that video was that the, the quote unquote evaluator advice was basically, instead of doing that the way you just did it, try it like this instead. So they essentially demonstrate how they, they want the person to do it. So, you know, that, that's an example of going through the methods with a fine tooth comb and really just, you know, you don't have to have a ton of, of experience reading research to get the sense that it's, it's a bit fuzzy, right? You might have thought that some of the things that I was picking apart was being a little too picky, but again, like we're assuming you were going to go and try to replicate this study and that would give us uh, proof that it's a good study, right? You kind of, you actually can't replicate it because we're missing information about how scores were given. And it's just very, it's very vague. A lot of, a lot of what the methods are saying. So you wouldn't be able to successfully replicate it. And so already that tells it's, it's not great, but then also the, the correlation that they're making, the biggest red flag to me is that the test that they use is a measure of musculoskeletal fitness. It's not a measure of mortality and that they are then extrapolating mortality rates from it when in fact mortality rates also correlate with just how old the person was. So there's a big leap in the conclusion that they're drawing in this study. Okay, hopefully you are still awake and I haven't lost you completely <laughs> because I wanna talk about one more thing. What does all of this matter? If you're sitting and you're listening to this and you're like, I'm still not convinced that I need to be able to do all of this or that it's really important. But if you have the ability to look at a few things in a study 
and get a broad sense of the quality of the study, that is going to tell you a lot about how much faith you should put in the results of the study. And then whether that is something that you should be including in either the way that you teach or the subjects that you talk about with your students, uh, the way that you talk with your peers. If you're in a class and you hear someone reference a study, but you know that you, you looked at it and you're like, it's really sketch. You could then go up to that person and say, hey, it does sound cool, doesn't it? Have you read the paper? Let me give you this link because actually it doesn't do what it claims it does. And then we are stopping this misinformation campaign one person at a time, right? Or maybe if you have a large social media reach, you can do it lots of people at a time. If you come across some interesting research or you hear about a lot of people talking about some new study, the most important thing that you can do is not just go, oh, wow, cool, and then quote it in your next class. Keep your critical eye and your critical ear, both of them, <laughs> and keep them open. If you learn that there are not already multiple other researchers who have uh, replicated that study, if this is a one-time and there's 20 people in the study and that's all we have, it is too early to start talking about it like it's facts. And in a situation like that, even the researchers themselves should be saying more studies are needed. Okay. I hope that this has been informative and helps you understand the value that research has, but also that it's really important not to just swallow everything you hear and learn and read hook, line, and sinker just because it's called a paper. A note to you listeners that you can check out the show notes for links to the references that I mentioned in this episode. You can visit the Movement Logic website where we have a mailing list for free content and our all important sales on tutorials, all that information. You can watch the video of this episode if you wanna see what my face looks like while I'm recording. And that is at movementlogictutorials.com forward slash podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. It really, really helps us if you liked this episode to subscribe on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And then to review it, on Apple Podcasts, etc. If you can write us a review, we would be so appreciative. We read them. It makes our little hearts so happy to hear that you are listening and enjoying it. And if there's something that you would like us to talk about on the podcast, stick it in that review and then we'll definitely see it for sure. Join us again next week for more of the Movement Logic podcast and more of our loosely held yet very strong opinions. <laughs>